Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Well, I want to make a confession to you. I, uh, I have to be honest. I have a problem. I love to fish. I think about fishing all the time. I can't cross the bridge without looking out and saying, Oh, today would be a great day to be fishing. Every day, I check the weather. Is it going to be a good day to fish or not? I read things about fishing. I even subscribe to a, an online community called, well, it's a fishing club. <laughs> There's a forum I'm a part of that's Pensacola Fishing Forum. And so fishing just consumes my life. I think about it all. Ask my wife. It's true. I'm always talking about it. And, and the worst part about this problem is if I have a chance to fish or do anything else, fishing oftentimes wins. Not always, but, but oftentimes. See, when you get fishing in your blood, it just... You, you just, it, it just, it consumes you, and that's just, that becomes not just something you do, it becomes who you are. Now, I'm being a little facetious there, but I want to tell you that there are three kinds of fishermen. In this room, there are three kinds of fishermen, and you know which one you are, although you're not going to want to admit about the first one. See, the first kind of fishermen are the, the kind who never actually fish, they just talk about it. This is actually the largest amount of fishermen. They talk about fishing. They, they talk about the ones they caught way back when. They talk about how they would fish if they did fish. And, and so talk, 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 talk is the majority of what they do. And they're perfectly content just talking about it because just the memory and the thought of fishing is enough. They, that's all they need to do. The second kind of fishermen are those who fish, but they don't really catch. But they're, they're, they're and how many of y'all are this way? You try and try and try, but it seems as though the, the phrase, that's why they call it fishing and not catching, is true for you, right? And then there's a third kind, and this third kind is a small, distinct group of people. And this small, distinct group of people, when you become this kind of fisherman, you become the man, right? Or the woman. You, you become the kind that everybody else aspires to be like. And those are the fishermen who always catch. How, how many of y'all know somebody like this? They always catch fish. It could be the most horrible, awful, no good day on the planet. And out of a hundred people, they are going to catch fish. My little, my nephew, uh, Carson is uh, not Carson. It's Peyton. Who's like this. Carson can't fish. He just talks. <laughs> Peyton can catch a fish in a mud hole in the street. He, he just has that knack. You see, there are three kinds of fishermen. What kind of fishermen are you when it comes to Jesus saying, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Do you just talk about it and, and like, to, like, to, like to think that you're a fisherman, but you never, you never put on the waders, you never, you never put new line on, you never actually go out and fish, do you just talk about it? Or are you like the second kind where you try, but you just don't do very well and you haven't really seen many results? Or are you the third kind where it just seems to come natural and just seems to come easy? 
You know, today I want to talk to you about Jesus and his ability to make you a fisher of men. Not just his ability, but his desire, his hope, his, his plan. We talked last week about how Jesus called Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And when he called them to follow him, he said, You follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And that, 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 that calling was a, was a promise that if you follow me, I will teach you to catch fish. And the beautiful part about Jesus teaching us to catch fish is this. It is a guarantee that Jesus will do the majority of the work. Because the majority of the responsibility is on him, not on you. I put a number on it, and my number is this. Fishing for men is 95% God, 5% us. But we often think that it's 95% us and 5% God. We think that it's the responsibility is ours and that if we don't go, they'll never hear the gospel. I used to actually preach that. If we don't go to the ends of the earth, if we don't go to the 1040 window, if we don't go to the unengaged, unreached people groups, nobody will share the gospel and they will be condemned to hell for eternity. That's not true. Because that means that you are God's only hope and you are not God's only hope. Amen? Listen, what I've discovered is that God is at work all over the planet in Christian-named countries or in anti-Christian-named countries. God is still at work. We never bring Jesus anywhere. He's already there. Amen? He's in the darkest of countries. He's in the lightest of countries. Now, we do represent Jesus, so, so we, are, we are his hands and his feet. And by the way, we are the way he chooses to make himself known. So this is not to say we don't need to do anything because God's going to do it. No, no, no. This is to say we need to get on the ball and we need to get about doing the business of God because God is already there waiting for us to join him. Sometimes all he's waiting for is for flesh and blood to, to, to be used as the example of what he's already been doing and what he's already been speaking. I've been watching a, a series, a documentary on YouTube. I want to I challenge you, but I want to caution you. If you're going to watch this, make sure you're ready to be, to be, to, to, for your world to be rocked. We don't know what country it is, but I'm assuming it's Iraq or Iran. And the, 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 the video is called Sheep Among Wolves. Anybody seen it? I figured you would. Sheep Among Wolves. And in this video, it's, it's believers who are, who are totally surrendered to the gospel. And their lives are lived for the gospel. They literally wake up in the morning and they say to themselves, Today is the day I might die. Today is the day I may be raped. Today is the day I may be arrested. But I've given my life to Jesus, and so to Him I give my body, I give my mouth, I give my flesh and blood. And they walk out the door looking for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. 
And I look at these, these places and I say, why doesn't God just do something that doesn't require the suffering and doesn't require the sacrifice? Why doesn't God just, just move amongst people on his own? Why does he use people and why does he use suffering and, and all this? And, and, it, and it actually started to make much more sense to me the last couple of weeks. And the reason he does that is because the hardness of the human heart will often not break until they see what they don't deserve and they see what they cannot explain. And that is a person who should hate but chooses to love. A person who should condemn but chooses to forgive. A person that, that, that should be angry but chooses to be kind. And when a person sees that kind of Christ-like character through and in the midst of the suffering... That person, his heart is changed and says, this must be God because nothing else can do this. I want to say to you this morning that I, I, I am, I am, I am, a, 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 I wish in some ways that the gospel were not freely given here in our country. I wish that, I don't, I don't even want to say this because it sounds, because I really don't know what I'm asking. But what I do know is that any time the gospel is easy, cheap, and free, it's, it's not spoken. And it's not understood and recognized for what it truly is. And any time it costs something to share the gospel, people say, you tell me I can't, I'm going to. And I'll give everything in my life so that I can. But in our country, because it's so easy, because there is no persecution, at least not compared to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, because it's easy and cheap and free, we go, eh, well, they'll just hear it on the radio. So the passion that you're hearing now is, is something that God has rebirthed inside of me on my sabbatical. And what he has rebirthed inside of me is this. We exist to present and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't exist to be a fill-in-the-blank whatever it is you do. If you're a doctor, or if you're a, a school teacher, if you're a student, if you're a, a, a mother, if you're a, a, a businessman, if you're a lawn care person, all that you do, that's just a job that is a means to an end. That is a circle of influence that God has placed you in for the sole purpose of making Him famous. And when we start to think this way, it changes everything. My prayer for you and me today is this, that we wake up in the morning thinking about fishing. That we become fishers of men in such a way that not only do we talk about it, but we actually go and fish and we start to catch. So lest I get ahead of myself, let's go to the scripture. Mark chapter 2. Y'all with me this morning? Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Verse 14, Mark 2, 14. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Come after me, he said. And Levi got up and followed him. 
And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And there's so much in this passage, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to have time to talk about the second half, half of this passage. We're going to have to do that another day. Because what I really want to focus on today is the fact that when Jesus was walking beside the lake, he called Levi out of his tax collector's booth. But the moment he called him, Levi had a plan and a strategy. And I'm going to ask you today, even right now, to begin to think of a strategy to follow Jesus and share the gospel. You see, we will, if, 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 it, if it's left to chance, if it's left to just, just accident, we will likely not share the gospel. But if we make a strategy and if we make a plan, if we make it our purpose and our pursuit, we will not only have opportunities, but we will be far more effective in sharing God's story. And so every one of us has circles of influence. We have our circle of influence amongst our family. Some of us have stronger influence than others, but all of us at, at some level have family. We have a circle of influence of, of where we live because we live in a home, in an apartment, in a, a condominium, something. But, but the interesting thing about us is that none of us at least as far as I know, live on a farm where it's 20 miles to town and the next neighbor. Now, if you lived in Montana, that might be the case. You lived in Utah, maybe that's the case. But you live in Florida, if you live in Florida, right? Most of us live here. So, so you have these things called neighbors. And for most of us, we see these neighbors as we're driving through back to our house. Not only do we have neighbors, but we also have a circle of influence of friends, we have people who we regularly talk to. Now, some of them are just Facebook digital friends. That's okay. That's all right. But some of them are real-life human being friends that we actually talk to face-to-face. -face. Sometimes we have lunch together. Sometimes we, we just talk on the phone. But nevertheless, they're real people that we have a relationship with. We also have a circle of influence at work or at school. And so we spend 8 to 12 hours a day at a place where we've given ourselves to do a task. And if you happen to work in an office where there's, there's, fr there's friendliness there, then you are in a place where relationship is already taking place. Or you might work in a, in a workplace where there's not a whole lot of relationship, but there's still people there, right? So we've got all these different circles of influence. Today, the message is simple. What is your plan? What is your strategy for influencing each of these circles with the gospel? What's your plan? What have you already done? And what could you do? See, I submit to you that those who catch fish are those who learn to catch fish. They understand the fish. They understand how to find them. They understand what baits to use and when. They understand patience. They understand how aggressive or how passive they need to be. And here's the thing. There's not one way to catch fish. 
By the way, how many actual fish fishermen do we have in the room? I just want to know. Raise your hand tall. Okay, Sarah. Okay, she, I, I'll give it to you. You do fish when, when I'm catching fish and I hand you the rod. That's true, so I, I'll give you that. Actually, I'm perfectly okay. All she is is another two-snapper in the boat. I'm okay with that. As long as she just rides. and I'm just using you, babe, for two extra fish. That's it. Because <laughs> we have a season and you get two fish for a person. So, um, so, that's, so, so if you're a real fisherman, like a fish fisherman or fisherwoman, you know that, 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 that you learn strategies based on what kind of fish, what season the fish are in. Are they spawning? Are they traveling? Are they conserving for the winter? Are they laying like speckled trout during the cold months? They're going to lay on the bottom and move very slowly. I know you're from Louisiana. You understand this, right? If you want to catch a speckled trout in the wintertime, you better not go fast. You better throw it out, let it hit the bottom, and just barely bump it. But if you're in the summertime, it's hot, you're going to go real shallow, and you're going to move it, and you're going to get them to do a reaction strike. See, these are things that fishermen know. Why? Because all fish are not equal. All fish are different. And it's the same thing with people. We would, would approach the gospel with our family in a different way than we may approach the gospel with our coworkers. And we'll approach them differently with our coworkers than we will with our neighbors. Why? Because it's a different level of relationship, it's a different level of trust, but it's the same level of responsibility that you and I have. Essentially, what we're learning to do is think of our own situation as a missionary would think of being in another country. It's not a one-size-fits-all. The best thing I learned from somebody one time when it comes to evangelism is this. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And in our mind, because he said harvest, what we think is we look out and there's this field of wheat. And that field of wheat has got little baby wheat. And then as we watch it, the little baby wheat grow into teenage wheat. And then it becomes uh, young adult wheat. And then it becomes uh, adult wheat. And then it becomes time to cut the wheat, Right? And so the way we harvest that field is what? We watch it as it grows, and then we take a combine, or we take some type of a, a large tractor with whatever wheat stuff, they, however they cut wheat, I don't know the terminology, and you take and you basically start going through the field and you start cutting the wheat, right? And you see this giant row that's been cut, and then it turns and comes through, and it harvests all the wheat because all the wheat's the same. Guess what? That is a horrible picture of what it means to be a fisher of men. You don't just go through and start cutting wheat. Being a fisher of men is much more strategic. It's much more personal. Now, there are times when you just cast a net and see what you catch, but much more of our life is about going, okay, I see that you're a little baby leaf, and you need some time. But I see that you are ready. So I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to spend time harvesting this piece. And I'm going to let that one grow. Does that make sense? It's much more intentional. It's much more personal. And it's much more about God than it is about you and me. Let's get back to the scripture. Sorry, I just got excited. So Jesus was beside the lake. He was preaching to the crowd. He was teaching them. And as he walked along, he saw a man named Levi. Now, Levi was a what? Tax collector. Now, this week I was thinking, so... so you know, we don't have tax collectors who sit at booths. And so I'm try I need to find somebody in our life, in our world, who, who we would have the same kind of feelings towards that, 
they would have had towards Levi, the tax collector. So I was going through the list of oh, dentists. You know, we, we kind of hate dentists when they're hurting us, but we don't hate them all the time because sometimes they help. And I got a great dentist too. And, and, uh, and the, the, the girl that cleans my teeth, oh man, she's awesome. I'm just saying, it's awesome. She's sitting right here, by the way. That, that's a little embarrassing, I got to tell you. Can I just say, Tara, that it is embarrassing to sit in a chair and let you stick your fingers in my mouth. It's for the good of my teeth, but, but it's a humbling experience. And then she wants to talk while she's doing it. She's got my mouth jacked open, both hands all the way up to her elbows or inside of my mouth. And she's like, so what did you think about such and such? Oh, really? I thought that too. I'm going, how do you know what I said? I guess it's a language, right? You speak dental work. I don't know why I was, where was I going with this? I'm so ADD, it's not even funny. Yeah, so I'm thinking, no, we can't use dentists because we kind of do like dentists. That's not, and then I started thinking, um, car salesmen. You know, we hate car, nah, but we don't really hate car salesmen. And, and so the only thing I could come up with a modern day equivalent of the kind of feeling we would have, like they would have towards Levi the tax collector is this, a tax collector. <laughs> That's the only feeling I can have. Just curious, is anybody in here a tax collector? Anybody work for the IRS? Good. I'm just kidding. Because nobody likes people who work for the IRS. Now, it's not personal. It's just the fact that... But see, it's even way worse for them. For Levi, it was way worse because... Here's the system. Rome required taxes from everyone, both those who were Roman citizens and those who were Jews. They had this, this setup to where they knew that being Jewish was a, was a, was a nationality and, a, and, a, and an ethnicity and a race. And, and so the Romans didn't force them to become Roman citizens. They allowed them to still be Jews, but they still had authority over them. So they still required taxes. But because of that, the Jews had a lot of animosity towards the Romans. They, they were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans because they felt oppressed and they felt abused as Jews under the Roman authority. And so the Romans did not directly tax the Jews. They hired a Jewish tax collector who was in charge of the whole area, and he was the guy who was incognito tax collector. In other words, he didn't ever sit on the street. He just hired other people to collect the taxes for him, and then he gave it to Rome. Did you follow that? So there was this special anger and this special hatred of the Jews to the tax collector. So Levi was a lower-level tax collector, though. He was one who would sit in the booth. Now, the Jews hated him because he was taking money from them to give to Rome. But here's how the system worked. Rome said, I want 3%. The middleman said, I want 3%. And the guy on the bottom, well, he could, get, he could charge whatever he could get away with. So as long as Rome got their 3% or whatever it was, and as long as the middleman got whatever he wanted... The amount that the final guy charged was completely up to him. 
Now you can see why they hated him. And I just have to remind you that if I were Jesus, I would not have chosen this method for sharing or, or for, for, uh, for, for getting my message across the world. I would not have gone, hmm, who can I choose to be my representatives? I know, I'll choose fishermen and the scum of the earth. I, I wouldn't have done that. I would have said, who's respected? Who's well-liked? Who's intelligent? Who has a degree, right? Because we, we look at things this way and God says, no, no, I do things backwards. Because he doesn't share his glory. So he chose Levi, and when he spoke to Levi on this day, he said, Levi, come and follow me. And the Bible says that Levi got up, left his table, and followed him. Interesting note here. When he left the table to follow him, he was leaving his security. He was leaving his position. He was leaving his comfort. He was leaving his livelihood. He was leaving it all. When he chose to follow Jesus, he chose to give up his life. Now, remember a minute ago I said that what you do is not what you do. It's just a means to do what you're supposed to do. Following Jesus means that you're no longer a, a, a teacher. Teaching just happens to be the sphere that God has given you to be a fisher of men. And that's a good thing. You want to know why? Because you no longer have to fight to keep your job. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't do a good job. I'm saying that when, you're, when your occupation shifts to where you work for the CEO of the universe, it, it pulls a little weight off of you. Because you know what Jesus said? He said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you drink or what you will wear. For the pagans worry about those things and all those things I'm going to take care of for you. He said, seek first his kingdom his righteousness, and some of those things will be... No, that's not right, right? What does it say? And all of those things. See, that's why when Jesus says, come follow me, we truly can abandon everything to follow him because God says, when you follow me, I got you on every single level. You don't have to be afraid for safety because I'm in control of safety. I am the safety coordinator, God says. It doesn't mean that you will always be safe. It means that you will always be safely in his hands. And sometimes God uses suffering to show his own glory. And if you'll listen to our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran and these other places, what they'll explain to you is you're never safer than when you're in the center of God's will. Never. And so you can let go of all these things because God says, look, I, he doesn't say these words, but essentially I am the master and commander of the universe. Everything belongs to me. Not one single sparrow falls to the ground where I don't know about it. And if I care about the birds that fall, how much more do I care about you who I've made in my own image? I've made you to look like me. I've made you to love like me. I've made you to know me. The sparrows don't know me like you know me. 
Because when, when they look in the mirror, they see a sparrow. When you look in the mirror, you reflect my character and my nature and my person. And so Levi got up and he followed. And what's the first thing that he did? Now, we don't know timeline here because sometimes the Bible, uh, the story skip and uh, time frame. And it could be a day, it could be a week. But the, but the inference here is this, that it was very soon after getting up to follow, probably that night. Levi has a party. He has a dinner. He brings out the, the big green egg and, and he fires it up and he throws some ribs on there. And he sends out a note. He, he, he pulls out his, his phone and he, and he texts all of his friends. And he says, yo, I'm having a party at my house. I'm going to tell you a really cool story about today. And he shoots that out and he maybe even puts it on Facebook. Because, you know, even tax collectors have friends. Well, what kind, of tax, what kind of friends do tax collectors have? Tax collector friends. There's a very important lesson here. Johnny, your friends are not my friends. Now, I think they would like me, maybe. But you have a whole different set of friends than I do. Your friends are not my friends. Your friends kind of my friends because they come to my house and eat my food and sleep in my house but other than that the point is all of us have a different set of friends right for the most part and our friends are usually people like us because we attract people that are like us and that's the beauty of the gospel god says you know what the way i'm going to reach the nations is by one person telling his friends and by those friends telling their friends. And by those friends telling their friends. He's not going to do it by a guy getting on a stage preaching to thousands of people. That is not God's preferred plan. Can I say it again? God's preferred plan of sharing the gospel is not from a man standing on a stage preaching to a crowd. Does he do that? Yes, he does. There are, there's times and there's places. But God's chosen method is this. I want you to have a party at your house and invite me to be a part of it so that I can introduce myself to your friend, oh, so that you can introduce me to your friends. That's God's chosen plan. See, we've gotten this thing backwards. We've, we've come to believe that the way we lead people to Jesus is just to bring them to church. Listen, bring them to church. I hope you do. But that's not God's number one plan. God's number one plan is to use the people already in their life and they have most trust and most confidence in, and that's you. Amen? So if that's true, what's your plan? Levi said, I'm going to have a party. I'm going to have a barbecue. Threw the ribs on the grill. He brought all these people together, and while he was there, he said, guys, listen, something happened to me today. I was out collecting taxes, and my friend, my new friend came up and invited me to follow him, and I did. Jesus, would you like to say a few words? And Jesus started talking. So where I'm leading with this today is very simple. I'm asking you to consider your circle of influence. Excuse me, your circle of, circles of influence. Where are you already involved? Now that you're already involved, how... Are you strategically moving step by step towards gospel conversations? And don't worry about those who are righteous. 
Don't worry about them. Go after the sick ones. You want to know why? Because the righteous aren't going to hear you. The sick ones are. I read a story this morning via email. I got an email from a guy that, uh, that I, I it just long story. But anyways, the email was sent and it said, it, it essentially said this. He had cancer. He found that he had cancer at 30 years old. He was single, living in Atlanta. He did some type of uh, 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 Wall Street or some, some type of uh, uh, blue suit job, you know. And he found himself without a church, in a hospital room, by himself, facing cancer, needing to have surgery, scared, alone, confused. He had faith in Christ, but he had disconnected himself from the body of Christ, and it had been for like 10 years. Once he got to college, he just kind of stepped away from church. And he was in this hospital room, and his dad actually flew up to be with him for this particular appointment because they were going to do some surgery. The doctor came in, had a conversation, turned around, walked to the door, reached the doorknob and started to open it and stopped. The doctor turned back around and said, you know, I just feel like God wants me to pray for you. May I do that? And this guy said that that was the turning point. Because in that moment, God spoke to him and said, I'm with you. It's going to be okay. Now, that doctor had no idea what God was doing in this man's life. That doctor had no clue except he heard God's voice while reaching for the door. He didn't share the gospel. He simply said, I feel like God is leading me to pray for you. And God knew exactly what needed to be said, exactly at the time that it needed to be said, and exactly the person they needed to hear it. And it revolutionized and changed this guy's life. I'm saying to you that you are that doctor in somebody's life. How cool is that? I mean, really? I mean, think about it. The God of the universe has found a person who is sick and needs a word from God, and God goes, I choose you. How would you like to be the voice of God? Come on. You want to talk about fun? You want to talk about cool? What story do you have that can top that? What fish is better than that? So, most of you know, if you're a guest with us, you may not, but I just came off of a sabbatical. Fifteen weeks, uh, I was gone, and, and after being here 15 years, uh, I stepped away to reconsider life and, and ministry and, and just, just ask for vision and God to clarify, why am I here? All these kinds of you know, midlife crisis things. And so the last part of my sabbatical, I spent elk hunting in Colorado for two weeks, Montana for one week, and then I went back to Colorado. Now, I had somebody ask me this week, say, wait a minute, you just went on a long hunting trip. I thought you were supposed to be on a sabbatical, which means you're praying all day long. Well, number one, I told you I have ADD. So sitting in a closet on my knees 15 hours a day probably is not going to happen. But Jesus went to the mountains when he wanted to be alone. I know why. Because when you're in the mountains, there is no distraction at all. And after you're in the mountains long enough, the voice of God sounds so clear. So as I was walking 
up this mountain or a different mountains each day. I'd walk anywhere from 8 to, to 14 miles a day. Hiking with my bow, with my pack. Some, some of the I mean, just awful, ungodly territory and terrain. And I found myself having out loud conversations with God. And I found myself just talking and he was answering and I couldn't hear him audibly. But it was one of those things where as I heard him, I would actually repeat back to him. Oh, so what you're saying is. And I thought to myself at one point, I go, I really hope nobody's watching me because they will come and, and, and arrest me and put me in jail and in a padded room for the rest of my life. At one point, I was actually laughing at, at God. Well, I wasn't really laughing at him. I was laughing at me because it took so long to figure out what he was saying. I was like, oh, pfft. So I went elk hunting for four weeks, two different states. I went to Montana, though, not to elk hunt. I've told you this before. I told you this about seven months ago, I think. I went to elk hunt because God was sending me there for what I thought were two people. One of them who needed, who still needs to know Jesus. The other, somebody who knows Jesus and I believe is called to ministry, but currently is not serving the way he needs to. And just through a series of events, I got connected to a place where these two were going to go. And when I found out that all of us were going to be in the same place, I started praying, God, this is you. You're sending me to speak a, a direct word to both of these guys. And for about six months, I started praying for this moment, this time, this situation. So I get to Montana. They're in Montana. And the first thing I'm thinking is, how is this going to happen? See, I'm starting to strategize. I'm starting to think, okay, I've got six days. How am I going to open a conversation and, and talk about Jesus? Because, again, these are two strangers to me. I had only known them by a brief, brief meeting. And so the very first day, um, we got everything inside of, of, of the lodge we were staying in. And I needed to get something out of my truck. So I started down, downstairs to go out. And this one of the guys started downstairs as well. So we both walked out the door. He went to his truck. I went to mine. And God said, do it now. So I walked over and I said, hey, um, Greg, I got to tell you, I've been praying for you for six months. He stopped. He said, really? About what? And I just started to tell him, I said, look, I, I think that God has called you. And I just started to share everything that I was, I was saying. And, and his basic response was, wow, you know what? I, I think you're, you're, you're pretty close on all of that stuff. And in that moment, God said, okay, you did what I want you to do. Now shut up and let me do the rest. See, because I wanted to get a, I wanted a decision. I wanted him to do something. Part of it probably was so I could go, look, look what I caused. And I think what God did was use me and then move me out of the way so I didn't get any of the credit for it. Because it's all about him and not about you and me. So what was really cool is the story that I told you last week about Jim, who was the preacher... Right? If you, if you were here last week, you remember that. I actually posted on my Facebook page, Jim Webley. He was the fighter, wore the Ozzy Osbourne church, uh, shirt to church first time. Came to know Christ. He became a pastor in Knoxon. Well, he was also a guide. Guess who he guided the whole week? Yeah, Greg. 
So the whole week, Greg was, 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 was attached to a, a preacher. <laughs> Isn't that good? So then I turned my attention to this other guy, Ernie. And I thought, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. About the second or third night, we were in our room. Now, to kind of make this clear, the room, we were on the third floor of this house, and there were six beds in the room that I was staying in. It was me, it was Greg, it was Ernie, it was another guy named Kevin, who happens to be from Pensacola, and it was a guy named Graham, who was a teenager, and his dad, Jay, who was an evangelist, or is. And so, you've got, you've got the preacher side and the non-preacher side, I guess, in the room. So about the second or third night, we didn't turn the lights off, but we just started talking. The rest of the group was kind of, kind of falling asleep, but Jay and I started talking, and we started talking about spiritual things. And then Jay asked a question. He said, Jeff, do you think God cares about whether or not we get an elk? Like, like do you pray to kill an elk? And I go, well, you know, yeah, I'm just hoping I, I'm praying harder than the elk's praying. I hope it's not a Christian elk I'm, a, I'm after, but, you know. Or I guess that would be better if he was a Christian elk. That way I could send him to eternity and, you know, it's just kidding. So, so we were talking back and forth, and I said, you know what? I, I, I try not to pray so much for that, although I, I've, I've had a couple prayers for an elk this week. But my prayer is really I try to make it more God, you know, bigger prayers, you know, something that glorifies God. He goes, funny you mention that. And he told me the story about how he was praying for a bear one time on a bear hunt. And he, was, he, was, he asked a friend of his to pray. And his friend said, let me ask you, do you want to get a bear for the glory of God or for your own glory? And we just had this conversation out loud. And then we kind of fell asleep. Lights went off. And the next night, we all were back in the same room. And we started talking again. And Ernie pipes up. He says, I, I got a question. I go, oh, I, sorry, I didn't, mean you were, I didn't know you were awake. He goes, I got a question. All day long, I've been asking, how do you kill an elk for the glory of God? <laughs> I said, wow. And so Jay and I kind of picked up on it a little bit. And he and I had a conversation about how each of us came to faith in Christ and about the miracles of God and about how God was moving in our lives and about our stories. And as we told each other our stories, everybody else in the room heard. And in that moment, it became really, really clear to me. One of the best strategies we can have for sharing the gospel is just to talk about Jesus with other believers out loud. But not in a religious way. That's the caveat. Do not, I'm not saying that you should go to work and find another believer and go, Bless God, hallelujah, Jesus has saved me from the pits of hell. Rescue him. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. That'll freak people out, weird them out. It's not good. Say, hey, man, what's God doing in your life? Great question. And if they're a solid believer, guess what? Man, I've been wrestling with, with anger and and as the world, as, as the people in our, influ, our circle of influence hear us talk about Jesus, we don't have to preach at them or to them, but they are being, it is, it is, it is, uh, it, it's the aroma of Christ that they're smelling. Does this make sense? 
I'm trying to get us to think differently because we think that sharing Jesus means we've got to come out and, and open the Bible and give a plan of salvation and then say, so do you want to receive Jesus now? Yes, that is part of it and there is a time and a place for that, but it's much, much more. It's strategically knowing this harvest is ready. This has just been planted. So over here, I'm going to water and I'm going to nurture and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love and I'm going to care for it. I'm going to wait for God to say, now's the time to say more. And over here, I'm going to be very direct and say, aren't you ready to trust in Jesus? I, I know that I, I got to close it up at this point. But I just want to ask you one more time. What is your strategy for winning your friends and your family to Jesus? You say, well, what do you mean winning? In John chapter 1, I alluded to this last week. The Bible says that Andrew went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they spent the day with him. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, one of the two that heard what John had said, the first thing he did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. It's all God's responsibility, but it's your responsibility. God does the heavy lifting. You get the easy part. And the easy part is simply this. Lord, you tell me what steps to take, and I'll take them. So let me make, to this, make you this offer, okay? I told First Baptist this, and this is this one I'm going to offer to you as well. Some of you have a hard time thinking about strategy. That's, that's okay. That's why I'm here. The gift of the evangelist is not to just go do evangelism. The gift of the evangelist is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. See, God thought about this before he sent you here. He said, you know what? I know you're going to need help. So there are some people in the church that I have supernaturally gifted to give you help. I'm not the only one. There are others here who have the gift of evangelism. Guess what? Our job is to help you to strategize and talk about Jesus. So if you find yourself struggling with how to influence your sphere of influence, I'm asking you to text me, call me, come see me. Let's just put it on a whiteboard and let's start thinking it through. Let's make a plan. It's not scheming. It's caring. Maybe it'll help if you have a, a, a barbecue at your house. Invite me over or invite somebody else over who can do this. And guess what we'll do? We'll start opening conversation about Jesus. It's especially easy if you invite the preacher because that's what they're supposed to do, right? So everybody expect the moment you go by, invite him a pastor. It's easy, right? Again, I'm just offering this to you. You don't have to, but do something. Have a coffee, have a lunch. Something. So let me ask a question. I'm done. How many of you want to do something? Amen? What if God was already at work and he was only waiting for you to join him?
What if he's been holding off so that you could get the joy and the pleasure of talking about Jesus? Can I tell you one more story? I'm so sorry. I know it's late, but I... I, I so my, what I didn't count on was my guide not knowing Jesus. His name was Justin. So Justin and I met on Sunday afternoon. He was going to come Monday morning, pick me up. We were going to go spend the entire day from before it was light until after it was dark together. So my first thought when I first met Justin was, I need to talk to him about Jesus. Just in our conversation, I got the sense that he wasn't a believer. And so I started thinking, how am I going to do this? That's a great place to start. So he picked me up the next day, and it was the first or second day. I can't remember exactly which one, but, but we were in the truck on the way back to the lodge. I had picked up my phone, and I was searching for something. And he said to me, so what do you do? And I said, I'll tell you in a minute. And I picked up my phone and made a call. Intentionally. I didn't want him to know I was a preacher. Because I didn't want him to think of me as a preacher. I wanted him to think of me as a human being. Turns out, God was in this. So for the rest of the week, we just talked a little about everything. And as we talked, I was gaining more and more information about who he was. I was thinking more and more what, what, what his needs are, what's his experience, what's his background. And then it started getting to the end of the week, and I started getting kind of anxious, going, okay, Lord, I need to talk to him about Jesus, but I don't really see an opportunity yet, so how do I start the conversation? Because, you know, sharing the gospel is a lot like flying an airplane. Taking off and landing are the hardest, most important parts. Actually flying it, piece of cake, right? How do you start? How do you finish? And so on the very last day, we were coming back across the mountain. We had about a mile or so to go till we got to where the truck was, and we heard an elk bugle. And it was about 30 minutes till it was dark, so the chase was on. We started chasing this elk. We were calling. The elk was calling. He was coming closer. We were coming closer. And, and that's what elk hunting is. It's this, it's this cat and mouse. It really is a lot of strategy. We got to within 50 yards. I got set up in front. My caller, the guide, was back behind me. He was calling. The elk was coming straight in. It was going to be perfect. And we were thinking to ourselves, I can't believe six days at the very last second of light. It's going to happen. He stopped behind some bushes. He turned around, the elk did, not the guide, and then he walked away. My guide came up and we're like, oh, and then he, he was just like, let's go get him. So we were chasing this thing and we actually were following his footprints. We got to where the trail was that was almost to the truck. And he was like, oh man, I can't believe it. I'm so disappointed. I, I thought we were going to do it, man. I thought, and he was just apologizing. I go, hey man, no problem. I, I now have another great story to tell. And God said, now's the time. And I go, I tell stories for a living. That's my job. He said, really? What kind of stories do you tell? <laughs> and I go, man, I tell all kinds of stories. I talk about hunting stories. I talk about fishing stories. I talk about my kids. But every story I tell leads to one single story. He goes, you're a preacher, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. And then he starts to unload. 
He said, you know, when I was in the mines working, there was a guy who became one of those Christians and, and he, he just constantly just told me constantly, you got to be saved, you got to be saved, you got to be saved. And finally I was like, dude, chill out. And I go, oh, that's why I didn't start the conversation on Monday. That's why I didn't talk about Jesus on Monday. See, I didn't know that until Saturday. And then as we started to talk, he shared with me that he did not have a Bible and had never owned a Bible his entire life, 35 years old. His family wasn't religious. He wasn't religious. He had heard this minor talk about it. But other than that, no, no at all about God. For the next hour, I went from Genesis to Revelation explaining how the Bible made sense. And I talked about how Jesus was the very center of it. And I talked about how I came to know Christ. And I talked about how if he came to know Christ, this is what would happen in his life. We got back to the lodge. I took out my Bible out of my truck. That's why I'm using a different Bible. And I gave him my Bible. And I said, here's your first Bible. Read it. And when you don't understand, ask God to make it clear. He took it. And he left. I walked into the room that night dancing. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. They're like, what are you so excited for? Best day ever. He goes, tell us about it. How big was he? Where was the kill? And I go, no, I didn't kill nothing. I got to talk about Jesus. You will never compare in joy and in thrill than when you get to talk about the greatest story ever told. Nothing will compare. Let's go do it. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? Father, my prayer today is that you would, get, you would ignite in our hearts a fearless, courageous passion to talk about Jesus. God, I pray that you would remind us it's not about us, it's about you. God, I pray that you would open up doors. Lord, Help us to see the already open doors. God, help us to make a strategy. Help us to think through it, through it as if it were the most important thing that we do, because it is. Father, I pray that even now you would convict us, comfort us, move us in Jesus' name. This morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to place your faith in him. I want you even now to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin is separated from me from you. But I know that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was so that I can be made right with God. Jesus' death brought God the ultimate glory. Your life given to Christ Jesus brings God the ultimate glory. I want to invite you to trust him today, now. For the rest of you, if you've not made a plan, I want you to start planning now. And let God be the very center of it all. Will you stand? Let's sing again. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.